there and welcome to another episode of Just the Chats, European Movement Ireland's podcast series, where we sit down and chat to a range of people across Ireland, Europe and beyond and discuss all things Irish, EU and much, much more. My name is Noelle O'Connell and I'm the CEO of European Movement Ireland. And since 1954, we have been working to strengthen and develop the connection between all levels of Irish society and Europe. And I'm delighted to welcome in person today, which is really, really nice at a socially uh, safe distance, um, our guest in person today, Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, who is the current Chief of Staff of the Irish Defence Forces. A very warm welcome to you, Admiral Mellet. Noel, thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. Thank you very much. Delighted to, del- delighted to be here recording in person, which makes a nice treat from our Zoom podcast up to date. Mark is a very distinguished guest for our Just the Chats podcast series today. He has over 40 years experience in the Navy and is the first naval officer in the history of the state to serve as Chief of Staff of the Defence Forces. Originally from Castlebar in Mayo, he began his military career as an Army Reservist and was subsequently selected for a Naval Cadetship in the Permanent Defence Forces. And throughout his very distinguished career, he has been involved in missions in Afghanistan and Lebanon, has led counter-terrorism and counter-narcotics operations, and received the Distinguished Service Medal from the Irish Government, becoming the second ever Naval Officer to receive this honour. Vice Admiral Mellet also holds a PhD in Political Science from NUIG and a Master's in Government and Public Policy from UCC. So a very impressive CV and a very impressive guest and Vice Admiral Mellet, or Mark if I may for our chat today because I'll keep tripping over your title. No, uh, listen, absolutely. And and, uh, just on the issue, later on today I'm joining uh, Jamie Cotter on the the George Bernard Shaw uh, for a sea trip and he is a recipient of a distinguished service medal is the captain there so I think that statistic about the second only maybe it was at the time but it's uh, 30 years ago I think since I, that award was made or nearly 30 years ago so we're out of date well we're a little <laughs> bit um, but I, I did join the reserve um, as I've said before when I was um, well technically speaking when I was 18 in 1973 and three years later I left the reserve and I joined the defense forces uh, and I was still 18 in 1976 and I've been there ever since um, nearly 45 years of service uh, as part of the Defence Forces and it's been an extraordinary uh, roller coaster, a, a tapestry of careers in many ways and uh, but a privilege to work with so many great women and men who are in our Defence Forces and the many many thousands who have served and who are veterans today. Absolutely. And and Mark, which aspect of your career in the Defence Forces, and as you outlined, it's incredibly long and distinguished and varied, which one particularly stands out for you or, or, or what posting or assignment do, sticks in your memory the most? I, I suppose when I look back and I mean, I, I've had really wonderful um, experiences like bringing a generator uh, from the west of Ireland on the back of our flagship all the way down to uh, Argentina and then bringing it up the Paraná River to put it onto an island, a small island called Los Lorelos, uh, where there was a small school that served all of the um, the riverine community on either side of the Paraná. Uh, children there, it used to take them three and four hours to get to school in, in small ferries and uh, then to come to school and actually have no power and it was part of uh, an arrangement with the Admiral Brown Society and the late 
uh, great JJ O'Hara that we managed to get the funding for this uh, generator and bring it down. That was a wonderful experience and, and that generator by the way was set to work by Defence Force Naval Technicians before we left Las Lorellas. In, on the other hand, on the flip side, I think one of the most impressionable experiences was serving in Kabul in Afghanistan in 2004. And just seeing what a, you know the framework of multilateralism tries to do in terms of bringing in the institutions of a civil society. Um, Afghanistan is in a difficult state today, uh, 15, nearly 16 years on. Um, after, I suppose, investment of trillions of dollars in terms of trying to bring stability, and yet it remains really, really fragile. And I, I suppose when I look at it, it's, it's just the hopelessness of the, the state itself in the context of after all of that time, uh, I suppose, trying to facilitate a safe and secure environment to see it so brittle uh, at, at, this, at this point. And, and one of the real difficult pieces when I look at it, and it's, it's not just in Afghanistan, but is the actual evidence of gender gap that exists in Afghanistan. And I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again here, one of the, the uh, there is an inextricable link between gender gap and interstate and intrastate violence. And while we in the military are often sent, you know, to deal with the actual, um, the symptoms in, in, in the context of interstate violence or, or, or of um, insecurity, really treating the disease uh, is about areas such as women, peace and security, establishing the institutions of a civilised society, ensuring that their investment is there, and that much broader palette that is not well beyond the scope of just the military. So, you know, the learning for me from Afghanistan is the, the, uh, the military is just one, if you like, section of an orchestra whereby uh, good states have a duty uh, to actually influence uh, how safe and secure environments are affected and that really is about institution building. And in terms of that uh, Mark I know you know for example I know in 2016 you launched the Defence Forces first diversity and inclusion strategy its statement and action plan and I think that was the first of its kind in the Irish public service focusing on the quality of gender culture creed age and sexual orientation for you, how important is actually living that? Is that diversity and inclusion piece in the Defence Forces? And, and what do you want to, to do to continue to ensure that we keep this issue to the fore of the agenda, as, as you outlined there? And obviously, as we've seen, Major General Maureen O'Brien becoming recently the first Irish woman to, to achieve the status of Major General and go on to serve great great things in the UN. For, so for you, why why is it important and and what what do you think the defense forces need to do to keep keep keeping that at the forefront of the agenda well i think it's um it's a recognition that we're all different and that that's that's a simple reality and and you know the number of principles i have and one of those principles have a strategy for you and what i mean by that is you you need to try and identify what are your unique competencies what what makes you different and action those and because that's that's what where you can make a difference in terms of the circles you move in and similarly in an organization like the defense forces if we're all automatons if we're all lookalikes if we all have groupthink we'll never be able to change with the rate of speed that's there today and that's let's see i suppose in the context of innovation and i i've made this point many times it is absolutely critical that we are actually able to have diversity of thought uh, in an organisation like our Defence Forces. So to come back to the, the, the diversity and inclusion strategy, I suppose at that time I, I was, you know, I suppose 
musing on on the defence forces and its challenge with regards to uniformity, but at the same time the contradiction whereby you want to have individualism and to allow piece of people to blossom in the organisation. There's a contradiction there, but actually, you know, what we've managed to do in defence forces, I think we've managed to navigate in a manner whereby we have uniformity in the context of where and the way we go about our business, the structures we brought in for military decision making, for campaign planning, for actually how we do a ceremonial and that. But at the same time, it's not at the price of individualism in terms of gender, ethnicity, creed, culture, sexual orientation. So we're trying to create that organisation where the individual has a left and right, a level of autonomy to actually contribute, to make decisions. Uh, part of that too is 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 also about the risk appetite in an organisation that you know you you have to share risk if you go along and you try and empower down to young decision makers in an organisation to give them the ability to make a difference at their level sometimes things go wrong and mistakes happen but I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said mistakes are the portals of discovery so the flip from that is straight away you need an architecture to learn from mistakes and that's something that has been a certainly on my watch is trying to bring in the lessons identified, lessons learned, culture. And now just recently we've stood up um, a group looking at just culture. And what I mean by just culture is an ability to actually to empower people to, to make contributions on matters that they, they might feel uncomfortable with without a fear of retaliation or a fear of you know being told it's not your business. Um, the leadership piece I, I, I think is very interesting. I always default back to Mary Parker Follett, she was an American philosopher back I think in 1920s and she said leadership is not about the exercise of power but about the capacity to create that sense of power in those who are led. The real role of a leader is to create more leaders and that's what an organisation like ours is. In a world whereby the information rate is so fast that every moment new technologies and new ways of doing things are being created, you have to actually be poised to seize that fleeting opportunity because those opportunities come to pass, not to pause. And if you're not empowered to seize it, you're missing opportunity again and again. It also means that you know we need to have people who are raising their head and every day ask that question. Is there a better way to go about how I do my business? Is there a new technology that has just been created? I think I was looking the, the Financial Times in the last couple of days, it was just a small segment there where it looked back at 2016 and it made the point that there were four zettabytes of data uh, in the world. Um, there are now 40, nearly 50 zettabytes of data in the world. It is moving at an exponential rate in accordance with Moore's law. And data drives information which underpins the creation of knowledge and understanding. And that's the sophistication we have in the world today. And that's a characteristic of the, the civilization and the technological evolution we have, and revolution indeed. And we need to be able to harness that as we go along and make face some of those really challenging issues coming coming no, actually not 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 over the horizon, actually in clear sight as we speak in terms of climate breakdown, biodiversity loss, and also the perverse use of technology in the context of cyber uh, attacks, cyber interference, manipulation of democratic institutions, and so on. And actually, Mark, to that point, I mean, if we if we if we take as you said that you have to be a disruptor and at the cutting edge of all things technology, if we look at the recent ransomware attack, for example, on the HSC. From your perspective, wearing your Defence Forces hat, what actually is the role that you play in terms of cybersecurity protecting the, the state 
And do you see this as something that the defence forces are going to have to invest in and be supported in terms of investment in the defence forces to equip the state to deal with these types of cyber attacks? Well, I think it's one of the questions that the current Commission on the Defence Forces is looking at, but certainly, um, and, and the, the responsibility for cyber is, is held in another government department. We have a responsibility within the Defence Forces for our own network and the security of that. But that being said, we're not abdicating in the context of a broader role, and we're standing ready to support the Department uh, of Health, in particular the HSE, in the context of the work ongoing. We put in a team helping in terms of the strategic piece, in many ways, we looked like a, you know at it from the point of view of campaign, and we've helped on that side in terms of campaign planning for the reconstruction. As, as we stand, we have six uh, computer incident response teams out in various hospitals at the moment, helping in the restoration in terms of services there. But there is a bigger piece, and I think that um, the attack we've seen on the health services here is it's not civilized. It's actually uh, really, really um, perverse. And uh, and I, unfortunately, I think it's just an example of, of more to come. Uh, the, the evidence in, in the context of the use of uh, cyber uh, by criminal networks, but indeed by state actors as a means to disrupt and to, to unsettle is, is there. We, we saw it in the early stages of the pandemic, whereby there was an onslaught of what appeared to be state-sponsored uh, cyber attacks in some of the uh, EU members. And uh, the, the, the challenge going forward is the issue of the stability and the security of our critical national infrastructure, whether that be the electricity grid, whether it be our, our water system, our energy system. Uh, we have to be prepared and to build a resilience in that regard. So from the point of view of the Defence Force on that side, uh, certainly we're, we're doing what we can in support of the HSE at present. I know the Commission of the Defence Forces will, will be considering the issue with regards to the integrity of our cyber security defence issues in tandem with um, the responsible department uh, and then looking at the capabilities that the defence forces need going forward as part of the actual armoury of a state to deal with this. And to that point, Mark, if I may, recently in an Irish Times interview, you said that you've never met a chief of defence forces who couldn't do with more resources. And in that regard, what is the optimal level for defence force staffing in, in Ireland? And how do we compare with other similar sized uh, member states w within the EU, as an example, in terms of per head of population? Because we, we do read about and we hear about the challenges in terms of resourcing, funding and investment for the defence forces. How do we compare across the board? Well, we're certainly not the strongest in terms of the 27, and I think the statistics are there, they speak for themselves in the context of the level of investment. My job is to make best use of the resources that are given to the Defence Forces, and I, I do that uh, in working uh, hand in glove with the Secretary General of the Department of Defence, uh, Jackie McCroom, and our, our endeavour is to actually maximise the capabilities and the effects we can make in the context of the primary role, which is linked to the defence of the state, our commitments in terms of overseas operations, our support in terms of the Gardaí and the civil authorities, and a number of other uh, other areas such as fisher protection, uh, ministerial and air transport, emergency aeromedical service, and, and so on. So the, the, the job from a Defence Forces perspective is to, to ensure the efficient, effective allocation of the or utilisation of the resources allocated. And I, you know, of course, I, I've made that point. I've never seen a Chief of uh, Defence 
who could not do with more resources. And I think this is one of the issues where our own minister has asked our, the Commission on the Defence Forces to be ambitious in the context of its reflection in terms of its adjudication of what is and what are the level of capabilities required to meet the taskings that roll out of the various assigned roles from government. And that reflection is going on being led by Aidan Driscoll, Aidan O'Driscoll, and uh, we wait out and see what they have to say. Yeah, because on that, on a serious note, uh, in terms of retention of talent, uh, and we hear about the war on talent, so to speak, and how to you know maintain high potential, high caliber staff. How do you compete, being blunt, in terms of the defence forces, if we take the whole cyber area against perhaps some of the larger multinational tech companies that can offer probably more attractive packages and remuneration and and. Is that a challenge for you? Well, there's, there's two pieces to that. When I look at the, the women and men in the Defence Forces, they're, they're extraordinary. We have extraordinary talent. And when I consider that loyalty, that dedication and that commitment, you know, I, I've said it, you can never pay them too much. But you can pay some cohorts too little. So, so the, 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 uh, going back to the Commission, there is a piece where the Commission is going to look at an independent mechanism for pay determination into the future, and I think that's a good thing, because there are four differentiators for members of the Defence Forces. First of all, we don't have a trade union. Secondly, we will never withdraw labour, we will never strike. Thirdly, we're subject to an unlimited liability. That's, that means our members are prepared to go into harm's way for the public good. And fourthly, we're subject to military law. They're, they're differentiators that differentiate from all parts of the public sector and other organisations. And that in itself brings a particular penalty with regards to retention. There is a piece parallel to that that uh, I look at the Defence Force. And this is, the, this is I suppose, the, the, um, the art in terms of the leadership piece, but also the retention piece. We give great developmental opportunities to young women and men who join the Defence Forces. Our junior non-commissioned uh, officers are developed to level six. Our senior uh, non-commissioned officers are developed to degree level. Our junior officers to degree level. We have a master's programme now for our strategic joint command and staff levels. And I'm, I'm trying to encourage, uh, in terms of work-based learning, PhD programmes uh, within the Defence Forces itself, whereby the corpus of knowledge created and researched by an individual is linked to his or her day job, so that the organisation reaps the benefit of that reflection. It's not a reflection on basket weaving, it's a reflection on something to do with cyber or something to do with uh, even transport. Uh, so that, that that kind of knowledge and corpus remains there, even if that individual then moves on subsequently to another uh, employment. So the, the, the art is to endeavour to make the organisation attractive for people to develop within the organisation, give a return of service within the organisation, but at the same time not to chain them to the organisation from the point of view of being feeling that they're, they're locked in, that they actually at a particular point, if they wish, are able to, to move on to greater job enrichment perhaps somewhere else. And you know, I remember a, a, a deputy in, a, in the Iraq saying to me, isn't it terrible to see this waste of talent? You know, I, I actually look at it from the point of view of re in, reinvesting talent back into society, back into enterprise. But the, re, the balance has to be right in terms of I need to be certain of an induction level in terms of recruitment and a retention level that is appropriate. And I am challenged, to be quite frank at the moment on that. The turnover rate and the churn within the Defence Forces is simply too high. 
and uh, there are areas that I, I, I'm endeavouring to bring to bear in terms of addressing that and one of those is the advocacy for an independent mechanism for pay determination. Okay, so watch this space is what you're saying. Right, very good. And Mark, I've heard I've heard you talk about it over, over the years in, in different form actually, the importance of upholding, maintaining, strengthening and reinforcing those values of multilateralism in what is becoming, and it already is, an increasingly geopolitically polarised world and the challenges, as you mentioned, in terms of the date, intrastate actors. You know, from your perspective, you said you think it's it's only going to get more prevalent and common. What role do you think the Irish Defence Forces can play in that? And is it something that the EU needs to invest more in and at a more cohesive level? Or do you see that Ireland will do its own thing somewhat on that? Well, I, I think, you know, if we step back, notwithstanding the, the Balkan Wars, we've enjoyed an extraordinary period of uh, stability within uh, Europe nearly 75 years since the um, Second World War and, and that was built on, on many things you know it was built of, on, the, on the vision of Robert Schumann in terms of his uh, lead up into uh, the European community and the EU institutions as we know them today but it was actually uh, also other enablers such as the Marshall Plan you know investment from the US in the aftermath of the actual uh, Second World War that actually, I think it was about $15 billion brought into the uh, European states at, at that size for reconstruction. It was, you know, it was counterintuitive that you would invest in uh, a country that actually you were in war with uh, just in the recent past. But that was the wisdom of the leadership back at that time. And over the decades, that stability that has built and been institutionalized within uh, the EU has been, if you like, a reflection of the the bedding in of multilateral framework there. But not just that, it, what has been significant also is the transatlantic link between the US and the EU, which was also a, a powerful framework. And up to recently, I mean, we were concerned on that, but I, I, I am certainly heartened to see more recent um, strengthening of that again. And, and, and I think that's good because that all adds into the multilateral framework and the importance of that. At a stage in our life, when we as individuals are physically experiencing the impact of climate breakdown and biodiversity loss, where we see it day in, day out in the context of challenges such as the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef or the fires in Western, in Western America, uh, even our own Killarney National Park, a fire there recently that almost destroyed half the park, completely out of season, there are indicators of tipping points that we're approaching are, are just at. We're not going to be able to deal with those in terms of a siloed approach, state on state. The, the only way that, 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 that the community can deal with that is within the framework, a multilateral framework. And that's, you know, they're the wicked problems that, that are actually at our doorstep in terms of the penalty of the, I suppose, the carbon footprint we created in this generation. Uh, but there are also then secondary, second order effects of that is the, the way the impact of climate is actually driving uh, insecurity issues. And we can see that where we have, uh, at the moment, we have uh, 13 missions in 12 countries, nearly 600 troops deployed as we speak. Some of those are actually in Mali, uh, in uh, very close to the tri-border area between Niger, Burkina Faso and, uh, and Mali itself. 
and and some of the drivers of insecurity there are actually directly linked to the impact and the desertification of the Sahara moving further south, where traditional rights in terms of Fulani herders are being impacted by Dogan farmers, and and they themselves are actually being uh, to some degree uh, either aligned with extremist armed elements that are actually fanning the flames of insecurity. And it just doesn't stop there. One of the areas I, I was reading recently that's going to be most impacted by the impact of sea level rises will be the Gulf of Guinea. And the Gulf of Guinea is where the greater population, or one of the greater population centres of Africa is. And that's a worrying trend. And, and so the, the, the challenges we face, you know, whether they're directly linked to climate breakdown and biodiversity loss, whether they're linked to insecurity and the impact of insecurity, they really can only be addressed, in my own view, within a multilateral framework. I recall over the last number of years, uh, our Defence Forces and our Naval Service in particular uh, rescued nearly 18,000 people in the Mediterranean as part of a bilateral initially with Italy in terms of Operation Pontus, subsequently Operation Sophia and now Irene. But the rescue there, and, and it, it was critically important, and I, I often think about those women and men sitting on the afterdeck of an Irish warship looking up at the tricolour and probably reflecting that this was the first time in months if not years that they were actually protected in a, a civilised society because the issue, the reason they were there is that they were a symptom of a much deeper cause and much deeper disease that actually was back to where they felt they had no option except to leave uh, their their own states and their own communities. The reality is that people want to stay and to blossom where they were born, where their family is. But the, the pressures that are there in terms of insecurity are such that they're only going to be addressed in the context of that piece of a, what the European Union calls the integrated plan, or used to be called the comprehensive plan, where all the instruments are applied, not just the military in terms of bringing the security chapeau. It is about the investment in terms of banks. It's about the NGO community in terms of stimulating opportunity. It's about the creation of employment. And it's actually about dealing with the uh, extremist elements that are there. But ultimately, it's about, I suppose, seeding the institutions of a civil society so that the actual community where they live is a safe and secure environment for their children to grow up. Absolutely, Mark, couldn't agree with you more. You mentioned there Operation Sophia, and as you may recall, you accepted on behalf of the Defence Forces our own European Movement Ireland European of the Year award to the Defence Forces in 2016. And when the, the then Taoiseach Enda Kenny presented the Defence Forces with the award, he said that ongoing humanitarian and peacekeeping endeavours abroad, that they continue to play a very prominent role in the 1916 centenary commemorations. And for you, Mark, as the chief, how important is it, do you think, the contributions made by the Defence Forces, as you have so eloquently outlined there, are acknowledged in ways such as this, and to keep that to the fore in promoting and upholding Ireland's values, not only at a European state, but at a global level. Is that something that you try to inculcate that value amongst the Defence Forces? Well, well there's just two points. I remember that day, and it was a humbling experience to receive the award from Taoiseach and Kenny at the time. And I, I still remember his speech at that time, where, where he, he spoke about a national identity, but he spoke about it in the context 
of a multilateral framework. And I, and I thought he managed that and, and balanced that so well, you know, because I, I do have worries in terms of the cohesion of the uh, 27. And we're, we're seeing that in terms of a, a, a gapping in terms of commonality with regards to values. And that that's leading to, to, to frictions. Uh, and and I, I think in terms of uh, it's in the news today with regards to uh, I suppose the freedoms of the LGBT community in certain states. We we need to, in as much as we can, mentor each other as states, and uh, that, that's that's at the the kind of uh, political and diplomatic level. And rolling that back right down to state level, we need to keep continually reflect on our own values from a state point of view. And I think Ireland's contribution to the UN Security Council is a case in point whereby you can bring your values to bear on the international stage with a view to influencing matters that are important. And uh, I, first of all, I would say that Ireland uh, certainly has a, a very credible position in terms of leadership. If you look at it in many ways, our, our, our ethos and our values have been forged in a furnace of migration, of, of famine and, uh, and oppression. So there's a credibility there when we talk about our values. And, and I think that makes us a very credible broker in the context of trying to bring these challenging multilateral frameworks forward. And I'm delighted to, to see, and I understand the issue of security and climate is very much along with women, peace and security on the Irish agenda. But you know, one of the reasons Ireland was successful, I think in its bid, uh, was the actual credibility from the, the almost 70,000 women and men who have participated in international peacekeeping operations in some of the most challenging theatres of the world. Women and men who have actually stood up to violent extremists, who have actually contributed to the rescues I mentioned in the Mediterranean, who have freed hostages, but have always been um, loyal to a mandate related to a UN Security Council resolution that was aimed at providing for a safe and secure environment. So the, the stimulant and the mindset of each of those soldiers uh, comes back to the institution of Oakley-Nahirn. And that's the reason we, day in, day out, invest so much in our own values within the Defence Forces. Uh, I had the pleasure in this very office in the last few weeks of making the telephone call to our 2020 uh, Value in Action recipients. And what I mean by that is, each year I ask our Defence Force personnel to look around uh, at their peers and to identify the individual that most reflects our individual values. And our values are moral courage, physical courage, respect, integrity, loyalty and selflessness. And it's just so wonderful to get these hundreds of testimonials coming in from uh, individuals. It's agnostic to rank, it's agnostic to command, but individuals who look around and see these shining lights within their cohort who reflect those values. And then we have a, an adjudication grouping uh, led by our Sergeant Major, uh, supported by warrant officers from the Navy and uh, Sergeant Major from the Air Corps and, and the brigades uh, with our uh, Assistant Chief of Staff and a real transparent governance mechanism to adjudicate and come up with the actual final recipients of that award. And uh, just two years ago, in fact, um, the President, uh, Michael Higgins, he actually uh, made those awards in Oris and Uchtaran. And it was a great, I suppose, a recognition of the institution of these values, 
which go to the foundation of the our organisation of Opening the Hearing. And many of those values can be traced right back to the establishment of the Irish Volunteers and Oakley-Nahirin back over 100 years ago. So the, the issue of values in terms of state level needs to be continually nursed from the point of view at the, 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 what I call the nested governance levels from state through to organisations and state bodies right down to institutions like our defence forces. And that's a leadership issue for us all. And, you know, uh, I, I often say values are not about perfection. We all make mistakes but they are about commitment. And the, the issue is to continually invest in trying to action our values in everything we do within the Defence Forces, so that when there is a soldier at a checkpoint somewhere in, let's say, a challenging environment in one of the most dangerous security missions in the world, that he has that sensitivity to deal effectively with the, the challenge that is in front of him, and that he is bringing to bear his own development which has started back here in terms of his induction training, his junior NCO training, senior NCO training, or so on, that he brings that to bear so that he makes a difference on the other side of the world. That's 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 really inspiring, Mark. And I think um, you know when you talk about all the was it six hundred um, six hundred uh, staff are in thirteen was it thirteen thirteen countries in, in twelve missions I and twelve thirteen missions in twelve, 12 countries. countries. <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's an incredible uh, a very proud legacy and one I think that 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 uh, you were justifiably proud to be upholding and, and maintaining. And and Mark, if I may, just bring it back a little bit on the EU side of things. Um, you might be aware that every year since 2013 European Movement Ireland we've commissioned an, an annual Ireland and the EU poll getting a sense of people's views on a wide range of uh, sentiment relating to Ireland's EU relationship and we often ask about the questions of defence and security cooperation and th this is an interesting one because we wanted to get a gauge of where people were at around the country on this so we saw in 2021 54 percent of people agreeing with the statement that ireland should be part of increased eu defense and security spending and in 2015 that that question 40 percent of respondents disagreed and obviously this is a topic that is going to form part in terms of security defense Ireland, the EU's place in the world, it is going to form part of the, the topic of conversation on the Conference on the Future of Europe. You know, from your vantage point, Mark, where, what's your take on this? Well, um, I, I was talking recently on a matter regards the law of the sea, and one of the principles of the, the, the law of the sea is, is the freedom of the seas. But actually, you know, Mara Liberum, it was crafted by Grotius back in the early 1600s, but his motivation was to have freedom so that you could have trade. Uh, he didn't want this idea of uh, enclosure or mara clausum to become a norm. But the reality is freedom is not free. And the, the adherence to norms and principles for a civil society requires that we, we actually uh, uphold th those laws and those principles. And that then brings you to the point with regards to the architecture for the framework of upholding those laws uh, requires structure and when I think about our defense forces you know from the point of view of our sovereignty we are the bedrock of our sovereignty and with the Gardaí we provide the framework for the institutions of civil society and so in that freedom you know people are free in our civil society 
uh, in that freedom our institutions function and in that freedom our vulnerable are protected but it is because of a collective uh, approach to uh, adhering to those norms and principles what was interesting a uh, hundred years ago around this time is this country was not sovereign it was not free and the my, my, my forebears were involved in that war of independence that brought us to a point of freedom with the establishment of the state the difference I think today is in a world that is now really globalized where there's an independency in terms of trade and communications that your freedom is now dependent in terms of the multilateral community within which, within which you operate so it's it's much more difficult to sit uh, as a siloed state and say you know we, we don't have interdependencies that we don't have reputational obligations in terms of our neighbors in the context of of uh, what's happening like for instance i don't turn a blind eye to narcotic shipments heading to the UK or heading to France. There's an absolute duty to actually uh, provide either the intelligence or an interception, uh, working closely with agencies such as uh, the Maritime Analysis Operations Centres Narcotics in Lisbon. And that's what we do in terms of day in, day out, while we're uh, delivering other services, such as uh, fisheries protection service in adherence with the common fisheries policy. That's something we do uh, we do it from a state point of view, but we do it with an eye on the actual interdependency that is between us and our neighbours, and not just our immediate neighbours, but neighbours throughout the EU and neighbours who are not in the EU. So the the, um, the 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 getting your mindset into this interdependency from a state point of view is is a challenge. But I do think, uh, and I I've said this in the past. You, we can remain sovereign and we must remain sovereign in decision making around uh, defence and security but we can't, we can't abdicate in terms of our uh, multilateral responsibilities and some of those are codified in terms of the treaties and, and, and that's a fact. Yeah, absolutely. And actually Mark, as, as we're recording this, you mentioned the words uh, sovereignty and values and it's give or take, we're in the aftermath of five years to the day of the Brexit referendum, uh, when we look a little bit closer to home. From your perspective in terms of Brexit, how has your role and that of the Defence Forces, has it had an impact? Or is that a fair question to ask? It's a very political question. <laughs> and what I will say is I have a very good relationship with the um, the Chief of Defence uh, of the UK Armed Forces. We, we were in, in regular contact and we, we had hoped to exchange visits in um, but for uh, the pandemic, that that hasn't been possible up to this this point. I just spoke to him uh, in in the recent past at the uh, European Military Committee meeting, where all of the chiefs of the European Union meet. And allied to that was a, a meeting of the NATO chiefs of defence. And um, but I suppose the the um, the reality is we have a memorandum between ourselves and the UK, and and uh, we have uh, within that memorandum we have a, a framework for collaboration and cooperation, and uh, on the simple areas such as narcotics and that, uh, you know that's a common uh, enemy that we have to deal with in the context of transshipment or uh, transiting through our jurisdictions, working together. There is also a reality that we have a long tradition in terms of mutual support, in terms of training. Uh, 
many of our, our leaders within the Defence Forces have been scholars of Shrivenham. In fact, my own uh, development as a junior officer was as a cadet in Dartmouth at the Royal Naval College and subsequently at the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. So that, that historical link is, is unavoidable. It is a, a reality in terms of how we have developed as states over the last 100 years and uh, that linkage will continue into the future. As Stuart Peach, who was uh, up to recently the, the chairman of the, the NATO committee, he said, you know, he said uh, UK was not leaving Europe, it was leaving the EU. And uh, we, we may all have a view on, on the, the issue of Brexit and, and it's not appropriate for me to comment on it. But the, the geographical reality is that we are neighbours and that uh, you know, Ireland uh, will continue to invest, I think, in the uh, framework to ensure that the, the, uh, the change in circumstances is not exploited by any actor who might have a view uh, in the context of undermining our security. And you mentioned there, Mark, meetings and engagements that would normally be taking place face to face, but due to the pandemic, the challenges of that actually happening are somewhat different. From your own perspective, if we can look back in early 2020 when the virus was beginning to spread, you must be incredibly proud of the role that the Defence Forces has played in the significant efforts in terms of tackling the spread of the virus, testing and tracing, vaccination, supporting the state and, and our health services. Is that one of the highlights? You, you, you know, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, back, you know, and this is day 465, I think, since we stood up the Joint Task Force Operation Fortitude, which is a, a, an organisation structure to meet the requirements of hitting the pandemic straight on, supporting the HSE and in particular Paul Reid, a commitment and a challenge uh, or a duty that was allocated to the Defence Forces by the National Security Committee. And we've done that, and we've done it, I think, with an alacrity. We've done it without fear or favour. Uh, we have endeavoured to ensure, in terms of every ask that has come from Paul Reid, uh, or the Department of Health, to meet that within the means and capability of the Defence Forces. I am really proud of every woman and man in the Defence Forces. The commitment, the dedication, the, the service that has been given has been second to none. But I would expect no different, because that's the calibre of individual we have in the organisation. And whether it's you know committed to the, the dealing with the shock of the pandemic in terms of tracing or testing or tentage or transport, and we brought that over 4,000 tonnes of PPE that came in on 259 flights, distributed it out. We're now up to our, uh, our eyes in terms of supporting the vaccination rollout in terms of the main mass vaccination centres, either vaccinators or supporting the governance side. We've rallied to the support of the health service in terms of the cyber attack. We're a key component of the architecture for the mandatory quarantine system. And we're doing all this and at the same time, we're meeting our commitments in terms of those 13 missions in 12 countries with 600 troops out there. We're doing it in terms of our maritime patrolling, our air patrolling, our support for the emergency aeromedical service, our support to Port Leash in terms of security, and a whole plethora of other areas whereby aid to the civil authority is caused or made at the drop of a hat and we respond. That huge commitment from our personnel is something that is a reflection of, I think, the calibre and quality of individual in the organisation. So yes, it has been uh, certainly a remarkable 465 days, but I don't single ourselves out as just as the organisation that takes the credit. This has been an opportunity, I think, for public sector to blossom. And we've seen that across 
all the elements there in terms of uh, the health services, the HSE, the National Ambulance Service, the Gardaí, the fire service, uh, the volunteerism just has been extraordinary that has been there and we've seen that and I think we as a society can be very proud when we look at the way we're, we're, we're addressing this and you know the evidence is there in terms of the vaccine take-up uh, that is going back to the point I said earlier on freedom is not free you know the, the issue with regards to a mutuality in terms of decisions we make we can't just make decisions you know from the point of view of self selfish point of view if we want to live in, in a community so uh, it's been a challenging period everybody talks about the new normal what we have in the defense force is a team working on the better normal because there is extraordinary learning that has come out of this and we need to harness that learning so when we land at a point future post-pandemic that we've really leveraged that learning in in a manner it could be in areas like blended learning better remote working and so on so that we actually endeavor to take what we harvested out of this 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 very challenging period and use it and flip it to an advantage and in terms of that better normal mark for the future would you be optimistic in terms of the increasing we'll say role and importance of multilateral institutions such as you know the UN the EU that the covid vaccination procurement uh, that that collaboration I know you said that it's going to be difficult, but you know, and given the perhaps the changing tide as well in the U.S. and that Mayo connection in the White House, are you optimistic about the potential for multilateral institutions and that greater collaboration to take place in the new normal, or do you think we still need to be uh, very much on guard and and cautious? I, I, I'm an optimist by nature, but we do need to be on our guard. This is the tenth successive year of a general deterioration in global peace and security. We've seen the shock in terms of the challenges to multilateralism through other you know, frameworks in terms of unilateralism, populism, and even greater nationalistic tendencies. What we really are talking about here is leadership, the leadership that actually is able to pull that multilateral framework forward that is not selfish in terms of putting caveats that are actually disruptive to the point whereby they break up the multilateral framework. The, the, the parallel piece to this is you know, the, the growth in technology that I mentioned earlier on. And when I look at that and, and, and I look at the sophistication that potentially can be enabled by that technological growth, whether it be through automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, intelligence of things, virtual reality, there is huge cause for hope. But there are genuine causes for concern and and that piece is the 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 piece i think is is around the leadership piece the cohesion of of maintaining that multilateral framework we've had a few shocks and we, we need to learn from those shocks as we continue to navigate into the future uh, and and i i do still um i, I do still have a sense of concern about uh, the impact of uh, climate and also the actual deterioration in, in global peace and security, three wars on Europe's border in terms of hybrid war in Ukraine, following the annexation of Crimea, multiple proxy wars in Syria, a, a stalemate in terms of civil war in Libya, and, and, and worrying uh, indicators on the institutions. So we, we, we can't uh, step back from uh, not being on our guard in, in the context of, of uh, what remains ahead of us. And with all those very important and weighty and difficult topics on your mind how do you uh, how do you ever get some downtime and relax 
Um, well, I, I run every day. I, I was out in the Phoenix Park at quarter past seven this morning, and uh, it's uh, it's probably my my uh, it's where I get my my time to myself. And uh, I read um, I'm reading The Great Alone at the moment, which is a, it's a, it's a beautiful read, and uh, I also take a small bit of uh, time. Uh, for some mindfulness and I should say mind emptiness because it's just trying to uh, stop that that mouse runs around your head all the time <laughs> and um, at the weekend I, I hike with Liz my wife and uh, I have four kids my youngest uh, is just on his last day in secondary school his last exam today so the last eight years we've been kind of I've been on the road and he's there so I'm looking forward to uh, in the next quarter uh, towards the end of September my retirement is coming and having more time with my family. I'm not going to stop, by the way. I, I'm, I'm looking at uh, options into the future, uh, but I do need to invest uh, more time and I'm looking forward to that time uh, coming soon. Well, well, wishing you every, every success in the next chapter, Mark, and thank you very much for being such a fantastic guest on E.M. Ireland's Just The Chats podcast. We could have kept talking for much longer, but I think time and, and the clock is against us as ever. But it was really wonderful to have the opportunity to meet with you and hear about the fantastic and important work that the Defence Forces are involved in. Everything from the COVID-19 pandemic to diversity to inclusion and the role of multilateralism for our world. A big thank you to you, our listeners. We really appreciate you tuning in to this special in-person episode of our Just the Chats podcast. You can listen back to all of our podcasts and webinars to date on the EM Ireland player. And please do make sure to follow us across our social media platforms. Stay tuned for our next podcast. And in the meantime, Sláin stay safe. Thank you very much. <laughs>